0: The Westwood One Podcast Network.
1: One of the things we try to get across to the world when we tell our story, everybody to know who the true heroes are. Because as career police officers, we've been called every freaking name in the book. I mean, there's names that I wouldn't even repeat on the radio to you guys because they're so nasty. But now people say, oh, now you're true American heroes. No, we're not. We're just a couple of professional law enforcement officers that got to work a really big case. The true heroes of this whole thing is the Columbia National Police, because they took their country back from this piece of shit.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness.
3: Welcome back to another episode. Hope you guys are having a great day so far. I'm grateful to be joined by two of the most badass podcast hosts on the planet, Marcus Luttrell. Morgan Luttrell. Good morning, guys. Morning. What's happening? Top
2: of the morning to you, buddy.
0: Here we go again.
2: Again. I think they wrote a song about
0: that. Here we go again. Again. How's y'all's weeks? Man, I've been everywhere this week. Me too. Every day is a great day.
2: Every day. Yeah, yeah like Christmas every
3: day I get up. Some days living in an RV is not a great day.
0: That's your own fault. Well, you living
3: in it all day? I, well, no, I try to there. get out of it. I am just sleeping there mostly. <laughs> cool. Well, <is> that <laughs> part okay? Bad. Yeah, the sleeping part's fine. Well, then, all right then. The kitchen part is the part that I have not like adapted to yet. What about the shower? Yeah, you know I'm cool with the shower. I'm all right with it. I mean, it's a little short. Like My head is definitely touching the Every day the roof. you
0: should be put, cooking on that pit.
3: Oh, yeah, I try to cook on the pit. I also bought one of those uh, black stone griddles, just a
0: flat iron. That's all oh, you need, man. That thing what is awesome. George, That's all I cook on is the a cast iron. George and the,
2: Foreman. Do you have one
0: of those? I don't.
2: That was my go-to when no, I was We traveling. started
0: with that. That and that Instapot.
3: I've heard a lot of good things about
2: the
0: air fryers, too. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awesome. I've seen those. Um, I cooked the uh, the KSC recipe slipped out online. It did? Yeah. Like the real one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Like the head-to-toe legit K's. The 23 herbs and spices. How, what? And... Um, yeah. Can you literally Google that? Yeah, I did. And I, I, I cooked it at the ranch. I don't think you were there, but they, there's this one girl, she does the difference between an air fryer and just a regular oil fryer yeah. with the 23 herbs and spices. And when the crust is real thick, sometimes the, the air fryer won't, you'll see some of the flour layers. Oh, still yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, but you'll always notice the difference. I mean, there's the taste, right? Yeah. You grew up on with the greasy right? Ranch- I like that grease. was supposed to be greasy. But uh, yeah, it was good.
2: And that's sad. And then
0: I I did the uh, I had some uh, halibut,
4: <laughs> it's
0: cooked the uh, Long John Silver. That recipe is out online. Long John Silver fish batter. As soon as the Coca Cola one comes out, I'm, I don't think I'm, that one's coming I'm out. I'm quitting. There's only two people that know that, right? I don't know. That's I think the awesome guy who kn- who knows it and keeps it. He when he time for the pass down, he opens up, hands it over, and then it's
2: kind of like the uh, fleur de lis. That's
3: cool. Angels and demons type thing.
0: I, started, I can't even eat fried chicken anymore. I started keto this week. Have you had one of those um Man Pie Pie? I did
3: have it prior to this week. Was it the, epic? The Popeye's chicken sandwich is pretty epic. I
2: don't know. They're always out when I
3: I spent my young times working at Chick fil A and it's better than Chick fil A, which is maybe sacrilegious to say, but Could that be. Popeye's chicken sandwich is. I was I was crunch. talking to, I
2: was talking to a group the other day about leadership and if if you think that you can't take a 17 to 24 year old individual and and make them into something special and what you want walk into a chick-fil-a
3: that's right that place taught me a lot going from there and then to apple they taught me what i know
2: senator joni ernst worked at churches i think it was fried chicken i think it was churches and now she's a senator first female from iowa Military vet, she's awesome, much the awesomest thing ever. I love her to death. Awesomest, she is badass. She's totally awesomest. All
3: right, let's get to a let's get to a listener story. Listener stories today
2: is my army buddy from William. So the story I'm going to share with you guys is not really my own, but my best friend's, and army buddy, Kenny. During our first deployment to Iraq, Kenny and I became really close. He has an amazing voice and was great at turning any good song into a funny one. Kenny and I were always together and always making each other laugh along with the rest of the platoon. I always gravitated to the funny guys, and during the hard moments, the laughs just kept us going. When Kenny deployed a second time to Iraq, he convinced the sergeant major to have me work with him at the b I was deploying later due to getting treated for PTSD for my first deployment. When I arrived there, it was like no time had passed. We laughed all the time, like always. Kenny worked the day shift, and I worked the night shift. One night, we got a call, and I was told to go to Kenny's Chew right away because Kenny was going to kill himself. My sergeant and I, in a panic, drove over to Kenny's Chew, and it still haunts me to this day. His front door was open, just a crack, and I had mentally prepared myself for seeing my best friend dead on the bunk. When I walked in, Kenny was sitting on his bed with the muzzle of his rifle underneath his chin, ready to go. My sergeant waited outside. Kenny was crying and very upset because his wife was leaving him. No one had a clue he was even suffering. I said the first thing that came to mind. Kenny, if you do this, you won't just fuck yourself up, but you'll fuck me up as well. Kenny started bawling. My sergeant got the chaplain, and I got the rifle away from him just in the nick of time. He told me everything he was dealing with. They took Kenny's charging handle from his weapon for a week, and a couple of buddies and I would make him laugh constantly by pulling it back even though it wasn't there. Kenny went on not to only finish his deployment, but also him and I doing a third deployment together. him to Afghanistan, where he earned a Bronze Star for teaching kids, and I ended up in Iraq again. I am out now, and Kenny is still fighting the good fight. He is in the reserves now. About two years ago, Kenny ended up with cancer and beat that too. Kenny and I both went to the E5 board together. Kenny is my motivation to never quit, and I wanted to share this with you guys because whether you are in Kenny's shoes or my own, helping someone who is on the edge, it is important not to just think about your current situation, but also what you can do to become if you just push through it. Kenny and I were both in the 1st Armored Division, and the quote that I will die with is, iron sharpens iron as one iron soldier sharpens another. I love you guys. I work out to your podcast every day. Never quit doing what you do. It's so important. That's an amazing story. Will, thanks for sharing that with us, buddy. And uh, I'm glad to see that Kenny's out still kicking ass and taking names. You're right, it only takes just... That one small intervention walking in and saying, hey,
0: man. Everybody gets put to everybody for a reason. The universe has a funny way of making it wind up exactly where you're supposed to be. I read that on a bumper sticker somewhere or something, but it's true, man. It's uh, Thank both you guys for your service. Yeah. And thanks for watching out for each other. That's what we do.
3: All right, guys. It's that time of the day. We got a Patreon question of the day. Today it's coming from Gary and Gary asked, what's the most difficult thing in your life that you've had to adjust to in the civilian world?
2: Oh, what? I got that one. I would say the most difficult thing to adjust to is, is having to slow way down because people don't operate in the same parameters as we did in the service where it's not a, you don't have a set time that you're going to work. You're just going to work. And when you, in the civilian world, when we were tasked with doing something, everyone everybody else was like, "Hey, it's four o'clock; it's time to go." It's frustrating because, you know, in in the world we just left, this took years for me to get my head around.
0: Yeah, I say for every two years you are in, or excuse me, for every ten you are in, it takes about two to detox out of that and just kind cur- of curb your 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 battle with them around. So, a lot of people think when they get out, if they' if they're high rank, if they've been in a long time, you made a lot of rank, you got a lot of responsibilities. When you come out, people want to go right into a. CEO position or something like that think about it from their perspective if they've been working there it's kind of like the son, you know gets kind of put into the boss's spot instead of working from the mailroom you know the dad who puts his kid in the mailroom makes him working way up you get more respect you get to see kind of each layer of that just like when we joined the military we had to start boot camp first and then you went to get your job and then you started working in it I mean look at your life as there is no you don't ever get out of the Academy so as soon as you start school you start school and you spend the rest of your life in it. It's just in the first 12 to 14 or 16 years, of, or excuse me, 18 to 20 something years of it, it's in a building and you kind of learn about what's out there. And that gives you an idea of what you're, what you want to pursue and what your comfort levels are. A lot of people look at the military and we, we're in a uniform and we stand in line of formation. That's just kind of the like first couple parts of it at muster, just to make sure that everyone's okay. You know, what, if there are any problems and getting your marching orders for the day, and then we all go out and do our prospective jobs. And in the military, it's just like a, it's, it's like a nuclear family. We have doctors, lawyers, accountants, guys who work in gyms. We have guys who play baseball, who go on a rodeo and everything. You got the, the younger brothers and sisters behind you and the older's ahead of you. And they're, we're all kind of policing each other up. And you, the rank we wear on our, on our uniform is to note kind of where you sit in the family. And then you get a job, you work at it, you get better at it, and you go do the next job. You take your older brother, your, eventually then your dad's position. one thing i've learned is that sharing your story is a powerful thing there are people out there that need a kick in the ass and your story could be the one thing to change their life forever take a minute to share your story at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast just click on the share your story button in the menu so we can encourage you along the way your story just might be shared on one of our upcoming episodes do you want exclusive access to the show and bonus behind the scenes content
3: Ask your questions for the guys on the episodes. You're going to want to join us on Patreon. You're going to get exclusive access to behind the scenes content, access to the exclusive Patreon community where you get support others, and you get rare access to Morgan, Marcus, and all of our incredible guests. Join us at Patreon.com/teamneverquit.
0: All right, let's get to the interview.
2: I've been doing a lot of homework on you guys. Fascinated by your stories and everything that uh, that you've accomplished, and the way even know even where you're going now. Never retire. I I I, I greatly respect that. Cause I think if you retire, you kind of pass away. Yeah, <laughs> no, then you slow down. You start to die.
0: Don't let the old man in. Right? Can you uh
2: Can you guys give us kind of a little background on uh, most people are? I think they think the DEA and like the letter agencies and the military that they, they they think that that's unattainable. How did you guys first? How'd you kind of? Pick that role, and then how was
1: it for you to get in and get get rolling? Well, for me, I, you know, since I was a little kid, I just wanted to be a cop. Uh, my father was a was a Southern Baptist minister, and we grew up in a pretty strict household. Um, but, you know, that was the norm back then. It, nowadays, people would probably put my dad in jail for some of the stuff that he did to us, but that was life. And you know what? We knew what was expected of us. Sure thing. So, you know, we knew what you could get away with, and you knew what you are going to be punished for. But— um, when he retired from the ministry him and my uncle opened up a flooring store in uh, nashville tennessee and and uh, we're pretty successful at it but they decided they wanted to go back to where they're from in west virginia southern west virginia so as i'm getting ready to go into high school you know he upped the family and moved my sister stayed in tennessee and, and uh, i went with my parents and um, you know at age 10 i had a run-in with the cops um a bunch of us were camping out in tennessee and you know it was a nice warm summer night we're out getting into mischief and it's probably two o'clock in the morning and and uh, we decided to break into a house. Now the house belonged to one of the guys that we were camping out with. And we needed to change because we want to go to the vending machines and get some crackers and some sodas in the middle of the night, you know. Well, some I guess one of the neighbors saw us, but they called the cops. Well, this was this was probably in the sixty seven time range, nineteen sixty-seven. And the cops that showed up scared the crap out of us. I mean, they shined a light on us, we were petrified, afraid to move. And after they talked to us, they said, you know what, boys, you got an option here. You can go to jail, spend the rest of your life in jail, or we can take you home to your parents. We all looked at each other and said, take us to jail. Take us to jail.
2: <laughs> uh, they always said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jail sounds easy right now.
1: Yeah. And they, they did just like you did. They laughed, um, took us home to our parents. It's probably a <laughs> punishment worse than death. But that just kind of stuck with me that, you know, these, these the older men looking good in their uniforms, out there working the midnight shift. Had common sense and they were allowed to use common sense, you know, which police officers will do today given the opportunity. But we, you know, with, with all these different movements and, and acceptances that are going on in the world, that's just not the way it is in sure. a lot of places now. Sure. Yeah. But that's what uh, kind of got me involved in law enforcement. I was, uh, ended up being a uniformed police officer in a place called Bluefield, West Virginia, 1975. I was all of 19 years old. You know, the faint thing thing about that story is, you know, you had to be 21 to buy a gun. I couldn't even buy a gun. One of the police officers bought my duty weapon and my dad bought my ammo. (laughs) I could carry the gun. I could shoot you if, you know, deemed it appropriate. I could put you in jail, but I just couldn't buy a weapon.
2: (laughs) You can't even be a police officer now at 19, can you? You have to be 21? You did in
1: 1975.
2: Times have changed. All right, outstanding. Javier, what you got,
4: buddy? Yeah, I grew up in a little town called Hebronville, Texas, South Texas. Love it, man. I love hunting there. Yeah, a lot of hunting. In fact, uh, we have a ranch there, a lot of uh, big deer. Uh, the wild pigs are taking over right yeah, now. Yeah, they are right. here too. They're all over the place. <laughs> but yeah, good hunting. Anyway, so I started with the sheriff's office in Laredo, 1977, and started off at the, working at the jail. I did about seven years, and, you know, back then I told people we were making, I think it was like 10000 a year, <laughs> I was 19 years old, man. you know, and I saw at our Bolton board, I was just getting my degree there, and, uh, it was an A&M branch in Laredo, but anyway, so uh, posted on the Bolton board was the sign that says that DA was hiring and starting salary was 17000 and to be honest, I did not know what DEA was. <laughs> I had to ask <laughs> this guy. He's not in the federal market. So I applied. It took about a year and uh, got accepted. And then, uh, you know what? My first job, I wanted to go to a big city first, Miami, L.A., New York. They sent me where? To Austin, Texas. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> in Austin at that time, I don't know if you know, I man. that was the music industry. That was the start of the music oh, yeah, industry. yeah, yeah, still, yeah. still. <laughs> Straight. So I had a great time in Austin. And then from there, I ended up in Columbia after that.
2: How, um, we'll kind of jump into the because I can't wait to hear this, but, uh, how did you guys get picked for the Escobar case? I can only imagine that that was probably one of the higher profile cases at the time. And I think, like anything else, it's really selective who gets put on what, what, uh, what duty. How did you two? Well,
4: you know what, and I'll go first. I, I got to uh, Bogota in 1988. I, I did four years in Austin. Now, my boss from Austin lived in San Antonio. He was the what they call the ASAC, the Assistant Special Agent in Charge. Joe Top anyway. So I worked for him in Austin, and you know what, I was you know single. I was running all over the place with the cops. Had a lot of stats, a lot of cases going. And then uh, when I put in, I put in for Mexico. And then my boss says, oh, yeah, did you put in for Colombia? He said, no, sir. I said, I put in for Mexico. He says, well, you got selected for Colombia. I said, all right, <laughs> let me go look for Colombia. you know." And it was all, and then I get to Colombia, and then my boss from San Antonio got the big boss in Colombia. He got the country out of Shea, so uh, he knew me. And I get there and I don't know, I don't know who Pablo Escobar is, I'll be honest. This was in uh, 88. And he says, oh yeah, we're assigning you the Pablo Escobar case. I said, okay, let me go (laughs) look it up And uh, you know, so I learned very quick who Pablo Escobar was. But it's, anytime you go to a foreign country, it's a voluntary assignment. And then, like I said, it was just, my boss knew my work ethic, you know, I was a worker. uh, So I got assigned uh, the case, basically. So I had to learn right away. What was life like in in Columbia at that time? Yeah, it, that's a great question. The life, you know, in Colombia at, at that time, you know, the attitude was, and I'm going to be, you know, kind of honest, the attitude there was the office was in a stalemate type of stuff. You know, a lot of the older guys would say, ah, you can't trust the cops, don't go, you know, don't, don't work with them. And, man, so we started going out there and we started finding out that if you tried, the cops were going to help you yeah. out. You know, it's like, anyway, so, but when we started, like said, the Escobar stuff, and, uh, you know, uh, his base was in Medellin, Colombia, uh, it was something that we had never seen before. And like, like I told people, well, car bomb, I never heard, of, you know, i have heard of what a car bomb was, I'd never seen or heard one. Then, you know, when Escobar started the war in Colombia, this, his primary focus was car bombing i mean 10 to 15 a day you know shopping really? centers at our base we used to live in uh in our police base in medellin and once we would leave our base it was in an old it was in a neighborhood you know uh type of uh area so we would leave there'd be people who would call them hey the convoys leaving so they come in and park a car nearby blow it up you know a lot of our guys got killed that way but you know that that to me that sticks in my mind Plus all the other, you know, all the other terrorism that he committed. But it, it was wild, wild west, basically. You know, two guys on a motorcycle. Man, if you see two guys on a motorcycle, you better get out of their way, man, because they'll get back. the guy in the back was going to shoot you. That was one of their favorite ways of uh, killing people.
2: What was, the, what was the ROEs for you guys? I mean, if you saw somebody, could you engage right away, or did you literally have to let them open up on you
1: first? Well, we had we had authorization to carry weapons down there, but you guys know you have no jurisdiction, no legal jurisdiction down there. We did have diplomatic immunity. For us, the ROE was if it's life-threatening, you could protect yourself. If it was your counterpart police officers, you could en- engage with them as well. But, you know, of course, you want to protect your family down there. We didn't have, it was just my wife and I, and Javier was single, which is why he had all his girlfriends down there. Mm. <laughs> so, another story. And I
0: bet you had some fun. Boy, <laughs> hey. Woo!
4: Supposedly. Right, right, oh, yeah. yeah. I heard Allegedly. I who, who knew a guy who,
0: who had some fun down there. So to, to, re, to relate that to common life here in the States, it's it's completely different when you, people don't understand what a car bomb on the side of the road going off all the time means or people riding down It's literally like a war going on in your town, right?
4: I mean, it's kind of that threat level? Yeah, just exactly like you said. it, <laughs> And you said, and it was, you know, it was parked cars. It was that you were at a restaurant, and all of a sudden, you'd hear that, you know, it, it, I call it a muffle sound. Yeah. And, you know, that black smoke, you know, I mean, guys, you've uh, seen it. Uh, but it was just, he was placing them at places that you never uh, expected it to be placed at. Shopping centers, he put one at a bookstore where kids and parents were buying their school supplies. Uh, he put them in parks and restaurants, right next to restaurants. He was targeting, like I said, uh, his main... His main goal was to kill as many people as possible. And the purpose was to convince Columbia to let him get his sweetheart deal. That was the whole purpose.
0: That's ultimately what turned the people against him, right?
2: The sweetheart deal was to be charged with one crime and
4: exonerated from the rest of the crimes, correct? Right. And the main thing was to live in his own created prison. His own prison that he was going to build. That, that was young.
0: Man, that guy had some stones on him, man, to be tossing that out.
1: That's a joke, isn't it? That's yeah,
0: a it's joke. a joke. Everything's on the table. Uh, with, with, like some, a lot of times with, with a, like a civil war, no white no kids, right? You can't mess with them or anything like that. But that guy, he was, he was, it was a free-for-all.
1: Well, that was the thing. So uh, one of the things that, the, that you probably heard the saying, plato plomo silver or lead. Do you want silver in the form of uh, money or lead in the form of a bullet? And Javier mm-hmm. tells a good story about yeah. the first judge.
4: Yeah, the judge, you know, the judges run the cases in Medellin, and now, you know, so a couple of Chicago's, you know, nicely dressed, they walk into the judge's office who had the main case on Escobar, and basically, before the secretary could stop them, they just, you know, went straight to the judge's office, and the first thing they did is show him a picture of his wife at work. Oh. The judge says your wife at work? Judge, are this your kids at school? So I got the judge's attention. What's, and, you know, then they started, hey, we're being sent by Pablo Escobar. And they said, here, we have a briefcase. Here's $100,000, sir. All you got to do is drop the charges against Pablo Escobar, and this money's yours. The judge had kicked them out. And you can imagine what happened the next day. They killed him, his wife, and his kids. So people got the message. And from there on, people started accepting those briefcases. And you know what? I do not blame them for taking those briefcases.
0: Most people here can't imagine that scenario when you're having, the, especially to come into a judge or law enforcement and throw a threat like that. Because if they can do that to them, they can do it to the common people. And a lot of people think that because the war is going on and the drugs are going on, that everyone
4: is like that. Man, there's those people that are trapped in that that environment. Yeah, and you know what? And there's a lot of other examples. And, you know, just the main ones. I know we don't have that much time, but the main one is is another, the attorney general. If you uh, uh, Google Rodrigo Lara Bonilla, the attorney general of Colombia is like our attorney general in the United States, right? Anyway, this guy was in favor of extradition, which we loved, man. We loved extradition. Oh, let me throw it out. You know know what the, the, the main Escobar's fight was over? extradition his he had a, a saying i prefer a tomb yeah. in Colombia than a jail cell yes. in the united yeah. states so yeah. the bottom of the story is all the traffickers all over the world what's the only thing they fear <laughs> they fear coming to the united states to a jail cell anyway rodrigo larborne <laughs> attorney general is in favor of extradition what happens two guys on a motorcycle sent by Pablo Escobar. the guy in the back shoots they killed the attorney general yeah. yeah. tell him about you know norway
1: yeah, we were so we're just like you. We're on the speaking circuit. We travel around the world. We're in Norway. We're doing a Northern uh, Scandinavian tour. We're in Norway, and at the end of the show, the the manager of the venue comes in and says, "Hey, there's a young Colombian gentleman out here who wants to speak to you." Well, first of all, that's not a comfortable feeling to know a Colombian man, <laughs> with, sure, because we're not carrying weapons. And uh, and we discussed it. We said, "Sure, bring him on in." We treated the two of us one of him. Well, you know what? It comes in, he's in his mid-twenties. Turns out that his, he was the nephew of the attorney general, Laura Bonilla, that was killed. He said the next day, and when Pablo killed you, he didn't kill you. He killed your entire family. Right. The families knew that, so their family joined up together, and they moved to Norway the very next day. This kid now is in his mid-twenties. He's grown up in Norway, speaks no Spanish, speaks like five other languages, but he can't even speak Spanish. But that's the links they had to go to to protect their family because his uncle— had the stones to stand up and call Escobar what he was, a drug trafficker.
4: And 20 of their family members had to leave Colombia. Imagine (laughs) 20 families packed up the next day, need to get out of here because Pablo Escobar's coming for you.
2: I was going to ask you two questions, I guess. Did you ever actually see or address Pablo? And have you since the day of days run into any of his family? Because I know his son is um, out and about. I saw an interview
1: with him. Yeah. No, the only time I ever saw Pablo Escobar was when I was standing over his body taking those pictures. Okay, okay. And we have not physically seen any of his family members. Our agents have called, you know, where they want us to (laughs) go on stage with him. There's uh, the son. There's one surviving member of the Medellin cartel. They call him Popeye. I hate to even give him any recognition, but he's the only surviving member of the Medellin cartel that we're aware of. And our agents wanted us to go (laughs) on stage with him. This guy admits on camera that he killed three hundred people himself, murdered them, and he admits on camera that he arranged as many as three thousand murders at the direction of Pablo
4: Escobar. Jeez. And they wants to go on freaking stage with him. <laughs> yeah, we, we we will never do that. Yeah,
2: I mean, he would go into martyrdom right there, probably.
4: Ah, yeah, we we will Love not. To, you know, and and like Steve said, yeah, one Pablo, one of his producers called us, wanted us to talk to him. I said, of course not. You know. Uh, we will not talk to him. And uh, but you know what? This this people is like 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 Popeye. You know what? And we put the number of Escobar's uh, killed people that he killed at about ten to fifteen thousand people. Popeye claimed to numbers closer to fifty thousand people that Escobar killed.
2: So. It's almost that's kind of like genocide.
4: It was. Yeah, it was. And and
1: then and you go back to the deal you were talking about. We call it the deal of a lifetime. He got to plead guilty to one crime that he got to select and unwittingly participating in the transport of cocaine. That's, you know, I had no idea it was in the car. And for that, he's absolved of every other crime he committed in his life, including tens of thousands of murders.
2: Right, right. But he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand being in jail, right? So.
4: Right. Now, and you know what? His, his deal in jail, I don't know if you all know, but I mean, it was a it was a great deal. And, and, and you know what? We also throw it out sometimes. You know what? If you're in the leadership or you're the president of Colombia and uh, you're seeing all your people get killed and you have a chance, I'm not saying that was righteous. I'm just saying that's the other side of the coin, mm-hmm. to let him surrender. You know what I'm saying? Sure. We didn't like the deal. Of course not. We we were very opposed to that deal. But if you're in charge and you have a chance to, hey, this guy says he's going to surrender, stop the bombing. And uh, you know what? When he surrendered, the bombing stopped. A lot of right. Yeah, no more people were getting killed. You know what I'm saying? I'm just throwing it out. How, how is it that he became that power? If you have a, a
0: functioning country that was there established before him and it'll be there after him and a governing a military how is it that he and everyone knew he was doing that <laughs> yeah How is it he, he he acquired that much power
4: that that that's a great question i mean wow that, and we've thought about it we i mean we were there we saw it and, and i think it was just the the terrorism the, the you know the sicarios uh you know that <clears throat> Uh, You know, I remember one of the, you know, anyway, it was a Saturday night, I'm at the base, and the informant called, and we were offering, I think, $5 million million. for the reward. Steve won there, it was a Saturday night. Anyway, so the informant says, no, I'm only want to talk to Peña, and uh, she, because, you know. Then we were paid, right, for the reward money. So, anyway, she said, hey, it's, and I also remember it was a really bad Sicario at a, at a club dancing. She says, I, I have him inside. He's dancing with a friend of mine. So, we rounded up a couple of cops who were at the search walk. We went up to the disco, and, uh, you know, obviously I knew who the guy was. So, I arrested him. He tried fighting. A couple of cops then came in. We subdued him. But anyway, we took him back to the base. And, uh, you know, it was just that cocky attitude and he confessed And that's something that I, I, you know, it's it guys, you've seen it, that where people say, you know, I will die for uh, Pablo Escobar. I will kill for Pablo Escobar. You know, you all saw that attitude, you know, obviously, you know, and uh, it was uh, then he confessed to me that he already killed 10 police officers. And Pablo had put bounties on police officers, a hundred dollars a head. Can you believe that? Hundred bucks a head. So he confessed to me he had already killed ten police officers, but that the attitude was, he says, "I will kill for Pablo, I will die for Pablo." He has given me money, and money goes to where? To my mother. My mother has got a shelter. She's got food. And, and i tell people if you multiply that attitude by all the other sicarios Escobar had so that that was that terrorism base and it's something we're not used to we 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 never dealt with this type of stuff you know car bombs we ne- i've never seen one you know uh then uh, all of a sudden you're thrust into that uh that terrorism war that he created so and you know what, it, it And was, it, it was an ugly war, it was, I'm, I'm saying ugly in that a lot of innocent people uh, got killed, a lot of uh, police officers, friends of ours got killed, and, uh, but I don't know, I mean he just got so powerful and I blame it on, on the terrorism, you yeah. know.
2: Can you take us, if you don't mind, um, through that day, through the, through the, through in 93, when you finally, we had him and how kind of high level, it had to be the, just a rush, just to know, all right, hey, this, this is it. And then finally, when you
4: realize, oh, this is really it. <laughs> Let me go first, because yes. Steve's got a good story. My, my story, it's, you know what, the irony. You know what, I <laughs> I, I got there in 88, I chased him in 88, and that that last day, um, yes. my I wasn't there, and it's, I mean, it's funny now, but, you know, not it wasn't back then, but, you know, I get a sure. call from the ambassador. And the ambassador, I don't know how, there's an informant named Navigante, and I say his name because he wrote a book. Anyway, so he's the guy who really... Put uh, Gotcha. The other trafficker was Gotcha. He got killed in '89. He was we infiltrated him, and he led us to Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gotcha, who was Escobar's partner. Anyway, so he's now in Miami, and then he calls the ambassador and says, "Hey." Uh, I want to talk to Pena, but uh, I only want to talk to Pena because I know where Pablo Escobar is. So the ambassador calls me in Medellin. He says, "You need to get on a plane, get go to Miami. There's an informant who's going to tell you where Escobar is." I said, "Mr. Ambassador, all due respect, we we're close. We, we know we're close on him. We're we're going to locate him here in Medellin." The ambassador did not care. He says, "And you know, guys, you know the ambassador. They're like the president of that sure. country, right? 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 He and uh, the irony is, you know, uh, when I get to, to Miami, the irony is the informant Navidantes on the phone, and then he covers the phone and he looks at me, and, I'm just, and i and we don't even say hello. All he says is Javier, they just killed Pablo Escobar. So, like shit. He oh lie.
2: man, that oh that sucks. Yeah, I go back to the airport
4: and, you know, at the airport, man, uh, the plane I get on and it's all the television network people, Telemundo, either, you know, going to cover the story. So that was my story. That's why I wasn't there.
1: Can you imagine what the, what would happen <laughs> on that plane if they knew who he was and he was on the plane? Oh, man.
4: Bloody. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, so for me, it was, um, I, you know, so I just traveling up to Miami, so I'm in Medellin with the Columbia National Police. And you guys probably know we had operators from Delta and and Team 6 with us for 18 months there. Yes, sir. You know, I mean, you know, you get to be friends with everybody because we're all pretty much on the same mission there. We had different responsibilities, but still the same mission. And so I'm standing in the room with all the operators and and it's, you Mm -hmm. know, just seeing what's going on. And, you know, you've got your different things. You go to the wire room, you go to the 800 hotline and all that stuff. And out in the quad, I could see all the executive staff for the Columbia National Police scurrying over to the Colonel's office. Colonel Hugo Martinez, he was our boss up there. So we had a great enough relationship that we could go to the Colonel's office and, and you know he would invite us in. So I go to the doorway and stand there, he sees me and he motions me in and, and uh, he's on a walkie talkie. And you can hear there's an, uh, an operation underway. And one of the Lieutenant Colonel's you know, whispers over, they think they found Pablo and the colonel's issuing orders. Um, long story short, you know, the Columbia National Police, this, this elite unit that's known as the Dijin unit, D-I-J-I-N, they're the ones that engaged Pablo in a firefight that day. It was funny because they used cord to blow the door off of this row house he was in, and that was the operators had taught him how to use cord. so they actually employed some of the, the explosives training that they had learned from the Americans. They go inside, they engage in a firefight, Pablo. Now, this was a little surprising for us. Pablo only had one yeah. bodyguard. You know, we, I mean, this guy at one point had as many as five hundred Sicarios working for him. This day, he's got one. So we knew, and we knew his power base was dwindling and his funding was dwindling and all that. So the first, the bodyguard, they go up to the third floor of this row house. He jumps out the window onto the roof of a two-story row house behind them. He's trying to make his escape across the the roof the the roof of that two-story. And a couple of police officers in the back engage him yeah. and they kill him. He falls off the roof. Well, Pablo makes it up to that third window. And one of our good friends on the unit, he had just come around the corner. And I think this is portrayed in the one of the trailers. He actually, he's sliding in on Pablo. Pablo shoots at him, but he trips on the steps and falls down, which saved his life because a bullet went right over his head. Then Pablo jumps out the window. He's down on the second, on the the roof of that two-story row house. And he knows there's a crossfire going. He knows, you know, there's going to be good guys shooting at him from the third floor here shortly. He knows there's guys on the ground, so he's trying to make his way along the building there. But you can only go so far, so he makes a dash. The guys show up on the third floor, get him in a crossfire, take him out there on the roof. Um, now, if you watch the show Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. Uh-huh. That's not true. I was back at the base. Damn. This, so like, <laughs> <laughs> that might be one thing to say about but... You know, one of the things we try to get across to the world when we tell our story everybody to know who the true heroes are. Because, you know, as, as career police officers, we've been called every frickin' name in the book. I mean, there's names that I wouldn't even repeat on the radio to you guys because they're so nasty. But now people say, oh, now you're true American heroes. No, we're not. We're just a couple of professional law enforcement officers that got to work a really big case. The true heroes of this whole thing is the Columbia National Police because they took their country back from this piece of shit. Sure.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? uh, Kind of interesting. When he was living at that house, he had a taxi. He was getting Mm -hmm. around in a taxi. And if you see the pictures, he was just real fat, beard, you know, kind of. I mean, when I saw the phone, that's Papa Escobar, because we weren't that sure. But he had infiltrated a little, uh, you know, lower class type of neighborhood. Was eating at this restaurant where all the people ate at. After he got killed, people were saying, man, he was always at this little restaurant dressed like a campesino with a, you know, that uh, coat black, mm-hmm. you know, they wear beard, a hat. Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Blended into that little neighborhood. Yeah.
2: What was the atmosphere like the next day? Or,
4: oh, uh, you know, he
2: had to be living like just like a rat. I mean,
4: he was living just, you know, in a simple type house eating simple Thai food had, like Steve said, had only one bodyguard towards the end. Because, you know what, one of the successes we had and we learned is how to do, a, how to take out an organization. You got to take out everybody. The Sicarios, the money launderers. So we were concentrating on, on everybody. The, I remember the big money launderers. We were arresting them. And we were doing joint operations in Miami. You know, any anybody who worked for Pablo Escobar, we were targeting them. Columbia was targeting them. So that, that was one of the factors that helped us is go after uh, everybody in the organization. So, and we would intercept some of his letters, and he was, you know, asking for money. You know, because he 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 had money, but he didn't have the cash. So he was living towards the end, and just a regular, you know, because uh, I think the work that the search blog did in taking out all his organization.
1: And you'd ask about the mood. You know, yeah. it was yeah. it was actually a mood of, of elation. Yeah not only with us, but with the Columbia National Police especially, because they lost thousands of police officers to this guy and his organization. So all the photographs you've seen of Escobar on the internet or wherever you might have seen him, I took those pictures. A lot of them, I did have some pictures of the team that killed him, you know, I'm in the third floor window shooting down on the, uh, on the second floor, on the roof of that second floor where the body was. And, you know, we've got the pictures of them holding their rifles in the air. Well, the there was a major with Columbia National Police that, that took those pictures out, so I never got those back. But then, you know, when the when the media started showing up and, and thousands of people started to come out because, I mean, you know how they are. There's a firefight and people just scurry out because they want to see the death and destruction and mayhem. Right. Well, the uh, one of the lieutenant colonels came over and he's like, uh, listen, man, we want to get you out of here. And I said, believe me, I want to get out of here. I'm you know what? I'm I'm from an English Irish background. I'm about as white as you get. Yeah, don't you don't blend. blend. sticking <laughs> <laughs> out like a sore thumb there. Yep. So they they gave me a patrol detail. We headed back to the base. And that night after everything was over, I mean, we tripled the guard. And the police base in Colombia is like a military base that you guys are used to. Yep. So they tripled the guard. We're expecting retaliation attacks. Quietest night I ever spent in Colombia was the night Pablo Escobar was killed. Mm-hmm. Next day they fly. Javier's yeah, back totally. in Bogota. They fly him in on a Huey gunship out of the base. We fly back to Bogota that evening. My wife was in the embassy. They had arranged um, a little celebration, um, and you know we we all got home like first light the next day. It was a, it was a hell of a
4: night. It, yeah, it was, and everybody. I wasn't there, but you know what? I, it was part of that that great feeling. Uh, you know, because this guy, like you said, and it, it was personal for us. I mean, sure. he killed a couple of good friends of mine. Uh, you know, I tell people we we went to a funeral where we had seven coffins in the church. You know, uh, the main guy was a you know good friend of mine. So it, it was personal. Colombians loved it. They they were happy. Uh, some of the Medellin people obviously think Pablo Escobar is still a hero, and uh we. Hopefully, we dispel. We have dispelled that myth, but he still has followers in Medellin. Why? Because he gave him a new house, gave him money, uh, and uh, you know what? We tell people right now: the number one tourist attraction in Medellin, Colombia, is his grave site.
2: I was, I was going to say: is there a site there that? How's that? I was going to ask if there's a site there that people visit.
4: Yeah, yeah, the gravesite, man. People go from all over the world. They they come, they want to go there. They've started, which, well, I don't know why, narco tours, where Pablo's brother, Roberto, and he's kind of, I'll say it, he's crazy. He's not all up there. Uh, he's doing narco tours. We're showing them where Escobar had properties. People are paying money. Sure. Yeah, look at this stuff. I mean, it is, uh, it is unbelievable. And, uh, you know, that prison, the so-called prison he was living at, you know, the main goal, you know what he was going to do after he, you know, after he left after the five years was he was going to turn it into a tourist, uh, uh, bread and breakfast type place. <laughs>
2: How much money? And it was, I know it was estimated he was making $18 million a day. How much is there? Do you think there's still money out there buried and hidden? to be found yeah,
4: there, there's a lot of money buried uh, in uh, caletas and you're gonna hear that word caletas anywhere it's a stash site it's a, it's a famous word in colombia you can hide it but yeah there's still a lot of money because they used to kill everybody who buried it you know escobar is dead you know and, and there's been documentaries they're trying to find it it's it's gonna be hard i tell people you know what you're not going to be able to find it unless weather conditions wash it up—storms, right. rivers, uh, stuff like that. But yeah, he, his main—he loved to bury the cash, and at that time, it, it was all cash that was coming back to him in Colombia. They—they uh, they were experimenting with a banking system, and we're still finding accounts in Switzerland. You know that this uh, organization had, but a lot of it was cash. Being buried. So, yes, there's still a lot of money buried there, but not unless you were involved in that, you're not going to be able to tell where it is.
2: Wow. I wonder if he had like a grid system or.
0: I can only imagine. It's kind of like when, when Bin Laden went down. This there's a weight lifted, like an accomplishment deal. I mean, sitting on on what you guys just went through, and I mean, good job chasing that foreign man in a foreign land. You guys integrating out there as, as a, your own two man reconnaissance team, and then with the the local police. That was the best part. When I was watching Narcos, was uh, when you guys integrated in with the Los Pepes, right? And right.
1: Well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's a. Different
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, um let's shift gears for a second because I, I i was reading that you guys are on a new adventure searching for american remains from american flight 229 before the war World war Two. yeah am i right on that
1: yeah the hawaiian clipper pan am hawaiian clipper the pan am hawaiian clipper yeah um
2: can you guys can you guys talk about that and give us give our our listeners a that's
1: fascinating yeah we've got um we've got a couple of buddies that that help us with our videography and editing and, and they're professionals. And um, they have this project. So the, the lead guy is a guy named uh, Guy Singer, He's a retired naval intelligence officer. When he was going through Staff Command College, his thesis was on this Hawaiian clipper, this Panam Airways. Uh, they had these, I think, three or four seaplanes they called clippers. This happened to be the Hawaiian clipper. Um, and through his research, he found out that it disappeared after it left Guam with 15 people, Americans, on board. Um, And through his research, he believes that while the plane was in Guam, you know, they had to island hop because they didn't have the fuel capacity to make a full trip. They're on the way to China. So while they're in Guam, when the plane took off the next morning to go to the next island, there are witness accounts that say that the plane was, was skimming across the water and it looked like it was tail heavy and then it finally took off. Well, the theory is that two Japanese spies secreted themselves in the back of that plane. The plane was huge. I mean, there's compartments everywhere that you could hide in. And, you know, people were not expect, like today, we would probably search the plane before we got on it. But back then, they didn't do that. Well, what we believe is that the two spies, when they hit the point of no return, came out with weapons, skyjacked the plane, forced it to land in Truck Lagoon over in Micronesia. If you know anything about Truck Lagoon, that was Admiral Yamashita's Pearl Harbor. That's oh, yeah naval base i've been there it's a it's a long way it's down there <laughs> <laughs> and it's and, and today it's the best wreck diving wreck in it man You, it, it is it's beautiful down there so uh what we believe is that they took the 15 americans off there they held them captive there for a while we've got statements from family members down there we were down there guy has been on four expeditions down there i went on one about almost two years ago. for We went down for two weeks and we're digging for bodies. We're trying to find artifacts, bones, whatever, witness accounts. How many are the, I guess, the lead investigators of the lost, we call it the lost clipper. Um, we believe that the Japanese, based on accounts from family members, took the 15 Americans, made them lay down in a plot, uh, like five, uh, four, four, four and three, that's 15, and then poisoned them. Then they put rebar over top of them, poured cement on them, and that's their grade. So we're trying to find the bodies. But the reason for the skyjacking is that the, the Lost Clipper had the newest, latest, and greatest engine technology for aircraft. So the Japanese wanted that plane. They took it to Japan, res- reverse-engineered those engines, and those are the engines they put on their Zero Fighters that attacked Pearl Harbor. So, our, you know, our, I mean, if we can prove all this— And we also now think it's linked. This is in 1938 when this happened. If you remember (laughs) history in 1937 when Amelia Earhart disappeared. There it is. We believe the two are linked. Um, So if we can prove all this, we may finally be able to put a definitive answer on what happened to Amelia Earhart. If we can prove this, this will be the first skyjacking in the history of the world. And if we can prove this, the first act of war against the United States by the Japanese won't be Pearl Harbor. It'll be the skyjacking of the Hawaiian Clipper in 1938.
0: That's amazing. So,
2: th- so thinking that Amelia might have landed in, on that island and they, Well, how's that work?
1: Not sure. She, we believe she ran out of fuel. Um, you know what? We believe that Amelia was a spy for the United States. Also, I mean, we we found we uncovered some evidence that supports that theory. Um, and I don't want to reveal too much because no, come was, on, <laughs> I was riveted.
0: No, it's. Uh, I, I tell you what, uh, I got a chance to go down to. Uh, we, we flew out of Guam into into Palau and down to Micronesia and went diving down there. We were with an organization called Bent Prop. and We were searching for there was uh, there was three frogmen that were captured and tortured on Saipan and, and moved out out in that area and we're in a prison, of war camp and um, they found some of the remains. It's like walking back in time back there. I mean, literally, the, the, the there's gun, rifles leaned against a tree. There's tank treads everywhere. It, it, it's something. That place, it is. It's, I imagine there's treasure everywhere. Because the crazy part is that how deep that reef is. So yeah. what is, is it, like 60 feet? And we dove on one of those uh, P-51s, and the only thing that was, it looked like somebody had rolled it off the showroom floor. This the prop was bent on the front of it, and it had a couple of bullet holes through the fuselage, but that wooden antenna was still on the back, and a coral had grown up through the, uh, the middle of the cabin. But you know, you go off that reef, and then it's what two thousand feet straight down. But and if you guys never stop going on adventures,
1: I mean that's a cra- <laughs> that's awesome. And you know what? That's what life is. It's an adventure. <laughs> Just because we're old doesn't mean we can't go on adventures, right? Oh, I ain't right. old, man. Just experienced. Yeah, got a lot of knowledge.
0: Yeah, it's been on a lot of adventures. That's in this family. Every day when you wake up, we say you go out. It's an adventure, man. So make it make it fun. Especially now, you get to search for all our buried treasure, which is our buried history. You guys dig that up, man? That's something. Because every every book that's ever been written, every movie that's ever been made, is waiting to be relived and rewritten just with the next generation. And the best part about it is, when you're out there on it, you get to discover the things that got overlooked from uh, from our past. So that's man, that's good stuff, man.
1: You know what? We may bring uh, some closure to the 15 families too. For those, there you go.
2: There you go, right there. That's 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 amazing. Uh, All right, well, we're gonna wrap this up. if okay. you guys are good with that. Thank you for sharing that story.
0: Yeah. If you could just, I mean, we you got any plugs. Em- yeah. Let anybody, let everybody know where we can find you, how we can follow you, how we can help you out. What
2: you got going on next. Something we can share with everybody.
1: Yeah. There's uh, if you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website, www.deanarcos.com. Uh, we've got a calendar on the shows where we're, where we're speaking at, where we'll be next. Uh, a lot of, a lot of fan photos, uh, information about us. Um, we are all over social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got Vimeo channels. We've got YouTube channels. We've, we've got professionals that do this for us. We're on LinkedIn, uh, all under DEA Narcos. And on November 12th of this year, our first book is coming out. Uh, it's called Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. St. Martin's Press is our publisher. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Uh, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, it probably help you cure insomnia when you read the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it's a little bit more than just our story about Pablo. It's about our personal lives, how we got involved in law enforcement, some of the other cases we've gotten to work on over the years. Um, we're also doing a, a project that's addressing – we're working with a, a group called Partnership for Safe Medicines. This is addressing counterfeit medications that are coming to the United States, which primarily contain
2: fentanyl. Fentanyl. There
1: you go. The scourge that is. And you know what, guys, you probably already know this, but in, in 2017, there were 72,000 overdose deaths in the United States. If you divide that by 365 days in a year, we're having about 194 Americans overdose and die every single freaking day in our country. And we still can't get people to, to become aware of this problem and take it seriously to do something about it. Now we've got states that want to allow... Americans, and, and believe me, I'm in favor of cheaper prescriptions, but they want to allow Americans to use these online pharmacies, particularly Canadian online pharmacies, which is a misnomer because those Canadian online pharmacies are actually located in India, Pakistan, China, China. Mexico, yep. you know, right. all the nice precursor and, and companies. And there's no
4: quality control. We talk to the Canadians. Right. The Canadian says, hey, they're going to the U.S. We're not checking. Them. That's yeah, they the can't
2: thing. check it. Go straight to the front door.
4: Yeah. And real quick, guys, what hits home for me is you've heard the situations where, hey, I can't sleep at night. So a friend will say, hey, take this pill, man. I've learned do not do that. No. A lot of situations that pill that was bought on the black market with enslaved with fentanyl. You don't know how many families we've talked to that, you know, my kid and good kids I couldn't sleep. Uh, here's a Xanax. There's one that just took a little piece of it. It was laced with fentanyl. That was it, man. I mean, just be careful. With if we it. could so, put yeah. one
1: piece of advice yeah. out there. I mean, it used to be, you know, if you had a headache, you'd accept an aspirin from somebody, a friend. Yeah, no, or just like you said, Xanax or whatever. You're having trouble sleeping. Uh, don't accept anything from anybody. Yeah, I mean, you just don't know what you're getting nowadays. Sure. So, yes, great uh, Partnership for Safe Medicines has had us up on Capitol Hill twice in the last two years. Once in the front of the House and once in front of the Senate. So that's another thing we're working on in our, our speaking business. You know, Dude. we don't want to be in competition with you. Cause
4: you're, you're up on <laughs> <Yeah>, year. you <laughs> Toyota, man. We're, we're still down there. Like, we'll them. pour the coffee there, man. Tell them. hey, <laughs> right,
0: One team, one fight, man. You guys, you guys are something truly. I mean, if keep doing what you're doing, if, if you could tell, I'll tell you what, what it, Looking back, all the stuff that you've been through, man, and hard times and the good ones. What are the if you could pass one lesson learned down to any any of all our listeners, what would that be?
4: Yeah, you know what, and I think it's your motto, Do not give up. And uh, there's many times we wanted to give up. We wanted to tell the Garman, "Let Pablo Escobar surrender." But then when you would see the innocent people get killed, you would see your friends get killed. It just you can't do it. Do not, you know, you had to stay in that fight.
1: Yeah, and I agree. I, I can't think of a, of a better lesson that we learned from that whole thing. And, and it's like you say at the introduction of your shows. You know, it's all about your work ethic. It's all about getting out there and trying to do the right thing. Are we still doing the right thing now that we're retired? We think we are. We don't know if we are, but we're not going to quit. We're not going to give up on this.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's just how it's supposed to work. A lot, of, And a lot of people get in those tough situations, and they'll be like, well, they're ready to move on because think, they're thinking somebody else is supposed to handle it. Well, I mean, yeah. you, that's why we get put in the positions that we do, because we're the ones that supposed to handle it. So you guys did that remarkably, man. You're still doing it. And uh, if we can help you guys out in any way, we will. Trust me. Thank
2: you. Hey, yeah.
1: Did you know uh, you know Dave Cooper?
2: Which one? Six? The, sh- the short
1: one? The man Master Chief. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Little Dave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Little Dave. <laughs> <cousin> <laughs> Coop? Coop, yeah. Coop, yeah. We were doing a contract training team a few years ago. We were going down to damn Neck uh, as a three-day class about you know how Embassy working in an overseas waterfall. environment. You know, what I'm but, uh, Got to be friends with with Coop and a bunch of the guys there at Damneck. Neck. Yeah, uh, a great yeah. bunch of. Guys. Yeah,
0: they're they're great, great guys. guys. Oh yeah, there's a reason why they're there, man. All of them are awesome.
1: Oh, they're phenomenal. You guys, you got, not just because we got you here on the screen, but you fucking guys are heroes. Noel, well, you know, no. it's, it's <laughs> we just like y'all. They, we tell everybody in our shows, if we're ever kidnapped, based on my oh, experience yeah. with you guys and with Delta, if we're ever kidnapped, you guys are the ones that want to come <laughs> and get us, not <laughs>
0: right. Well, I mean, if you you know, you put all those first responder uniforms together, you get camouflage. It's a forever uniform. Yeah. We just get to put yeah. our name on it. I and mean, you pull all those colors out, and you get y'all and I mean, we're yeah. just we're just kinda like a a police force that gets that gets to go over to the other countries to operate just like you guys. I mean, same thing. We're just an extension. Yeah, We just watch each other's backs. Right. Thank you for the work you've
2: done. All right, guys. Have a great
0: day. Great weekend. God bless you all, man. God bless. Thank you all very much. Thank you. See you.
2: You know, you really don't hear much about the the, you know, most people don't even know there's Americans on site. When that desk part thing went down, it's cool to talk to the two, you know, the two guys that were leading the charge for the American side.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, they're making shows about it, and there's books and all kinds of movies about him. And kind of over time, you get to see the, the detailed part of it and them being a part of that and ex- sharing that with us. Yeah, that was awesome, man. And now, especially what they're doing, they just kind of never stop going on adventures. Yeah, that next adventure like seems Secondhand cool. lions, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? It's just kind of like rolled with each other and, and chasing the adventure. I mean, that's awesome. Guys never stop doing that. Yeah, thank you all for being on. story was awesome. Yeah, I wish we had more time. There's a lot of more details in there, I'm sure. If you want to be the first one to know when we drop a new episode, then you need to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can press the purple subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or any other major podcast player to be notified the moment we release a new episode. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any other podcast player. We've got a ton of great episodes and had some incredible guests, including J.J. Watt, David Goggins, and LaDamian Washington. If you're already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you know we're going to keep our followers up to date with new gear, new sales, new guests, new events,
3: and tons of other stuff you're not going to get anywhere else. If you're not following us yet, you're missing out, follow us right now at team underscore never quit. You can also keep up with Marcus at Marcus Latrell, Morgan at Mojo Latrell, and me at Andrew Brockenbush on Instagram. Thanks for coming back to another episode. It's fun to do this every week, and you guys' stories, you guys' involvement in this community and part of our team
0: is what keeps us coming back we truly can't thank y'all enough for um, listening to not only us but our guests and keeping this thing going it's an amazing thing and uh, we love you guys for it god bless i'm out
2: out here thank you